Amen, amen. Hey, it is good to be with you guys uh, this morning. I am uh, I'm excited to be here. I got up at 6 o'clock this morning and started the drive here and uh, enjoyed, what is it, Platteview Highway, I think, or Platteview Road maybe that comes in kind of parallel to the interstate. Enjoyed that highway. If you haven't driven on it, you should. Wish I would have rode a bike this morning because it was beautiful, all the winds and the curves and the hills. Um, I am uh, excited to dive into 1 Peter chapter 2. Verses uh, 4 through 10 with you this morning, and uh, it's a privilege for me to be here, to open God's Word with you. Um, I want to echo something that, that Chris had said um, about our partnership in the gospel and our partnership in Acts 29. Um, <clears throat> those times that, that uh, the Acts 29 pastors get together about every other month are, are some of my cherished uh, times uh, throughout the year, uh, partly because when, when we started our church, um, there was only six of us, my wife and I and, and four others, and, uh, and we started on our park bench. It was August of 2012. And so uh, uh, been at it almost nine years, and uh, I was a solo pastor basically for a long time. It just took a long time to see people begin to follow Jesus and uh, begin to be sanctified in the gospel and to be raised up to become leaders in our church. And so for me, uh, every other month, meeting with guys like Chris and others in our network as we partner together to see churches planted where, where people would begin to follow Jesus um, was about the only space I had where I was with other ministers of the gospel. And so it was a safe place for me and uh, continues to be so today. And I, I love Chris a bunch. feel like he's one of my closest brothers as well. So uh, you guys have a good, good pastor. You have a great pastor who loves you a whole bunch. And so... Uh, uh, yeah, privileged to be here. I don't want to carry on too long. I know I got 35 minutes to preach. Usually I preach 45 on Sundays, but I want to give you about a five-minute snapshot of who I am so you get a little bit of uh, uh, where I come from. So I grew up near Lincoln, Nebraska, a uh, little farmhouse on a hill. Um, my home, there was no Jesus growing up, okay? My mom and my dad came straight out of the hippie era, and my, uh, my mom, uh, the three things that she loved the, the most was good weed, good whiskey, and good rock and roll. Now, at some point, all those took root in my life. A couple of those still stay around today. You do the math and figure out which one is out. And uh, um, so grew up there. My dad was an alcoholic. He left when I was five years old. I only have one sister. My mom then moved on to a bunch of different rotten dudes from that point forward, some of them bikers, some of them logsmen, some of them bankers, some of them cowboys. I mean, just weird, bad guys. So my vision of manhood from an early age was pretty jacked up, right? So by the time I was in my late teens, I was smoking as much weed as I can get my hands on, drinking as much as I could get my hands on, looking at as much pornography as I possibly could, visiting a strip club twice a day. Um, my life was an absolute wreck. Um, in uh, June, of, um, June of 2000, I got on the back of my motorcycle and uh, was going to pick up supplies for the weekend. And I pulled out in front of a truck that was going 50 miles an hour, plowed into me from my left-hand side, and the bike flew out to the right and it exploded. Woke up in the middle of the street uh, a few moments later and uh, that truck looked like it had been wrapped around a telephone post. Lots of pain in my left-hand side, tried to stand up. Um, looked down, my left foot was backwards because the bumper had broken my femur bone, which is the biggest bone in your body. So for all you ladies that have had kids, I've felt more pain than you have. Go do the math. <laughs> but, if you've had, but if you've had multiple kids, then, then you probably got me beat. So my wife, my wife constantly tells me, I go break that femur bone multiple times and then you'll catch up to me. And so, 
Um, I had broken ribs, I had a broken collarbone. Um, really, I should, be, I should have been dead. Um, as I lay there in the middle of the street that day, uh, the Lord spoke to me. And my dad had come back into the picture, begun following Jesus, begun helping to plant a church in Lincoln. Uh, it was a Somebody's of God church, and uh, he was their first drummer. And uh, he bought the very first drum set for that church. That drum set is now in my attic. My son plays that. Um, I'd like him to stop sometimes because it's loud. Um, but uh, my dad had been pursuing me with the message of the gospel, and he had just simply been saying, hey, Joe, you can't change yourself. Only Jesus can change you, and you need to come to him and trust him, confess your sin. He'll save you, radically change your life. And I didn't want him. I didn't want anything to do with him because he left when I was five, so I've been kind of flipping him the bird for a long time, right? But laying in the middle of the street that day after getting hit by that truck, um, heard the voice of my father in heaven, really like the voice of my father here on earth saying, hey, Joe, you ought to come and follow me. You ought to trust in the work of my son at the cross. I'll radically change your life. If you don't, your life's going to be just as destroyed as what's just happened to you in the middle of the street. So I gave my life to the Lord that day. And uh, to give you a, a bit of a picture of how jacked up my life was, I woke up in the intensive care uh, later on that day. And my wife and my girlfriend were both in the room with all four of my oldest daughters. And uh, so my life was jacked. Um, the Lord needed to pull me out of a really deep, dark pit. And it, and it took time to restore that life. There's a lot of stories that I could tell you, um, but I will say that God was very gracious in leading my wife to the Lord through our oldest daughter, Aubrey, that you mentioned earlier. At the age of five, my oldest daughter led her to the Lord after, uh, after a, an emotional breakdown that she had. We have been married now uh, almost, uh, almost 19 years, so that's almost two decades. That's, that's a long time. We've, we've known each other for uh, 27 or 28 years, I think it's been, and uh, there's a lot of story in the midst of there, but suffice it to say, again, the Lord restored the years that the locust has eaten and then given us a great ministry. Um, we moved to Hastings in 2008 to do some work for a parachurch ministry called Youth for Christ. And then, uh, and then from there, in 2012, we sensed God calling us to plant a church. Now, here's, here's what happened for us. As I was being discipled um, in my younger years, uh, coming up in the faith, um, I, one of the guys that discipled me was like, hey, Joe, I don't, I don't want you to disciple people that are going to get comfy in a church. I want you to disciple people that are going to reach out to lost people and get on mission. And so there's this statement from a, a missionary named C.T. Studd. And the statement goes, some people want to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell, which means some people just want to be really comfortable in their seats on Sunday mornings. But I want to run a rescue mission within a yard of hell. C.T. Studd then goes on to plant tons of churches through the China Inland Mission, if I, if I remember correctly. And so that, uh, that mission statement, running a rescue mission within a yard of hell, was the mission for my life, and it's the mission for our church. We named it The Well because Jesus goes and talks to this woman at the well, right? And he calls out all of her sin, and he says, hey, you've got some worship dysfunctions. My father wants to set that straight because he's looking for people that will worship him in spirit and in truth. And then she goes back to town and tells all the people about uh, meeting Jesus, right? And all these people come out, and Jesus hangs out for two more days with the entire city. And, uh, and then after those two days, the people from the city, they come up to Jesus, and they're like, hey, yeah, we heard about you from this woman, and we believed in you. But now that we've heard you for ourselves, we believe in you. And so you put those three together for us. When we, wanted to, when we started planting the well, we wanted to disciple people to run a rescue mission within a yard of hell, to reach the lost, to reach the hurting, to reach the broken, to reach the outcasts of society, right? Um, we, wanted, uh, we wanted to go into the highways and the byways, so to speak, and reach those who maybe wouldn't walk into a church on a Sunday morning. 
Uh, secondly, we recognize that what Jesus wants to do is set our worship dysfunctions straight. And the way that that happens is when we hear from Jesus for ourselves. What you don't need this morning is you don't need the word of Joe, obviously. You need the word of the Lord, right? And so that's the work that we're uh, engaged in in Hastings. Been at it for about nine years uh, and give you lots and lots of stories. We've baptized some people and uh, we're recently given a church property with some buildings on it, which is absolutely insane. Uh, but to give you a bit of a, a, a picture, just kind of last word here because I'm at six minutes and I only want to do five minutes for introduction. Um, give, you, uh, give you a last little picture as I was looking at you guys' financial update. We do the same thing in our church too. And uh, uh, I'm so thankful for your financial partnership. I want you to know how much the, the money that you've given us the last two years now, how, how, how huge it is for us. You guys' uh, monthly income is just a little bit less than our annual income. And we're running about 120 to 130 people. Um, the demographic of our church is slightly different. And, uh, and, and so I, I think it'd probably be good for me to say we're probably, I don't think I realized it then, we're planting a church in a very hard place. The community that we're in in Hastings, uh, south of the tracks is where our building is at, boasts 10,000 people. We're the only English-speaking church on, and Bible-believing church on that side of Hastings. So there's a good population of 10,000 people. It's the old historic area of Hastings next to a spot called Brickyard Park. And, uh, and so I'm just thankful for you guys' partnership and thankful for your, for your investment in us because it, it helps. It helps to make disciples who glorify God, all right? So love you guys a bunch. I want to dive into the scriptures. Uh, we are in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. I know it was already read, but I've got a kind of a way that I do this. And if I break the way that I do this, it's going to throw me off. So would you all stand with me as you're able? Um, the reading of God's word is so important to us, right? And... Um, you don't have to read out loud with me, but if you would follow along your Bibles, I don't know if it'll be on the screen or not, but uh, I want to read it a second time for us just to get our heads back in. I'm going to pray over God's word and I'm going to preach, okay? So 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Here's what God says. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning, amen? I pray over his word, pray over his word quick. Father, thank you for your word. Ask God that you would come now and speak um, in a way that is transformative, maybe healing, uh, maybe, maybe, even, maybe even need to come and rebuke some of us, and then comfort at the same time. I pray, God, that you would use your word um, to transform our hearts. Help us to behold you in all your glory. And Father, I pray that you would come and just be a father in our midst, that your fatherly presence would be known 
and felt in very ta- tangible and transformative ways. God, I trust you to do this work in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And as you're sitting down, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about something that is very special to you, okay? So get that object in your mind. I don't know what it is for you. Think about something that is very special to you. Maybe it's something that was given to you. Maybe it was something that was handed down to you or something that was made for you by someone that was very special to you. Maybe this thing that you're thinking about that you own, maybe it's something that resembles an experience or, or, a, or a memory in your life. It reminds you of a special season or a special memory. So you got that special thing in your mind that you own? Now, most people take pictures, I think most. Nowadays, we have smartphones that are filled full of, of pictures. We take pictures of people and, and events that are special to us, right? Now, Christy and I, um, we just recently had our family pictures taken with all of our kids. We've got seven of them. Failed to mention that earlier. I think Chris did, though. Um, we got seven of them. We got six daughters and a son. Then we got one grandson. We have two sons-in-law. So when our, when our whole family has the opportunity to get together, it's a big, wild ride. Um, I'm Italian, so we're loud. And we're, we're obnoxious. And we say really crazy things like, forget about it. And it happens all around the table. And then we laugh. So we took some family pictures recently just over Christmas when, when all of us were together. And if you were to walk into our home... Uh, what you would find is you would find all of our family pictures arranged on a wall where my wife has painted a, a big black tree with leaves on it. And she's, she's arranged like the center family picture with all the pictures of the, of the kids around that on the branches. And the reason that we've done that is because for us, as you can imagine, our, our family is full of people that are super special to us, right? Each person in our family has a, a kind of a special memory for us. I can go on and on and tell you stories about each kid and tell you stories about my wife over, over almost nearly two decades being, being married. In fact, that picture on the screen there, I think, is the center picture. And the picture that she had developed and put on a canvas is about that size, too, just so you know. It's enormous. It's huge. So we put that, that, those pictures on the wall to just signify that our family is really, really special to us, and each person in our family is special. Um, but the irony in all of this, if you think about it, I think the irony in all this is that you and I can put those pictures on our walls to communicate kind of the special place that we have in our family, put those pictures on our walls to communicate the, the special people that we hold dear to us, and at the same time, we can walk through life with a deep sense of real brokenness, right? Or, or real loneliness, or real disconnectedness. I mean, just think about it. How many of you have ever sat in a room full of people and just felt entirely alone, even though you're surrounded by a ton of people? That's loneliness. And ever since the Garden of Eden, I think that you see um, that this is probably true. Humans have lived on this earth since the Garden of Eden, based on Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, separated from the very perfect presence of God, right? 
We, we live in this world like people who don't have a family, people who don't have a home here on this earth. We, we long for someone to treat us like we're actually special to them. We long to have a special group that we would actually call family. This is why we do church. It's to build a sense of community, a sense of family knit together by the message of the gospel. I think this is where the message of 1 Peter comes into those kinds of things. That longing to be special, that longing to belong, that longing to be a part of something, that longing to be somebody. See, Peter's original audience, if you do the study on 1 Peter, his original audience here that he's writing to they're believers who have been exiled from Jerusalem, their, their hometown. All throughout Israel's history, they, they were moving towards a place called the Promised Land, which is where Jerusalem is at, basically the, the star city. And then at some time, they kind of got booted out of there. And so now Peter is writing this letter to them, and they've been exiled. They've been given the boot out of their homeland. They're scattered across the, the known world, and they're, they're pushed out of the centers of community. They're, they're actually, if you think about it, you can put, put yourself in their shoes. They've been relegated to the sidelines and, and, and despised by society. They didn't, get, didn't control the central seat of influence anymore. And the message that I think Peter's audience, deep down inside of their souls, willing to admit it or not, the message that they kept hearing is, hey, you're nothing special. You're, you're, you're really, you're all alone. You're, you're really, you're, you're a nobody. Nobody loves you. <coughs> With that message ringing in their ears, I think what Peter does is a very good pastoral work, and he steps in and writes this letter to simply preach a, a different message to them, a, a redeeming, transformative message to them, so that he might combat the lies of the enemy. Now, here's basically what I see him saying in this text that we're looking at this morning. I see him looking into the eyes and into the faces of those believers who have been exiled, booted out, and scattered. And he's saying to them, hey, actually, you are a special people. You're, you're being built on, a, on the foundation of a very special person. His name is Jesus and on top of that, you've been engraved with a, a special message. I think that's what Peter's saying. That's, that's my loose summary. You see, at the end of the day, when you think about the church and, and who the church is, not just another social club, right? <clears throat> the church is, is actually a family that is being built with human stones. Each of us is one of those stones in the building. Jesus is that special cornerstone that, that holds it all together, causes outsiders to stumble as they try to come across the doorsteps. In God's family, we, we've been called out of the darkness, right? That's what Peter's saying. Been called out of the darkness to proclaim the message of the gospel back into that darkness. Why? Well, so that others might be rescued from the power and the presence and the penalty of Satan, sin, and death. So that's, that's a general summary or overview of what Peter's doing. 
I want you to think about this for a few minutes. If you think about verses four through seven, think about this, this principle that you actually are a very special people. As you're thinking about that, I want you to put yourself in Peter's shoes, okay? Think about you being the author of this letter. When I envision that, I see Peter sitting at his desk, right? He's, he's contemplating how he's gonna write what he wants to say to the churches that are full of people that he loves. So put yourself in his shoes. What I see on Peter's face is I can see agony in moments. As he thinks about the people that he loves so much, as he thinks about how they feel like they've been tossed aside, like they've been scattered around like worthless pieces of trash. As Peter thinks about that, he's, he's laboring over his desk and he's, he's writing words that he hopes would bring some kind of comfort, some kind of healing to souls that have been ravaged by the power of Satan's sin and death. Right? Satan comes to condemn Sin constantly tempts and death constantly taunts us. I'm coming for you. Your days are numbered, right? So I think about Peter writing. I think, I think when Peter writes, I think he would write like I would write to one of my own kids. So in verses four through seven, he's writing. He says, hey, as, as you come to him, as you come to Jesus, Jesus is the living stone that has been rejected by men, which means he's been rejected by many in the world around us. But in the sight of God, right, in the sight of God, the maker of heaven and earth, Jesus is actually chosen. He's, he's precious. He says, you yourselves like living stones. You're not dead, inanimate objects. You're being built up as a spiritual home. For what? A spiritual home for, for, for the presence of God to live in. I mean, pause there and think of it. If you've trusted in Jesus, he's filled you with his spirit. The lion of the tribe of Judah has made some kind of a lion's den inside your heart. The spirit of God lives in you as individuals and then collectively as a community. That's wild. It reminds me of the picture of the, the Chronicles of Narnia. My kids always say I say it wrong. I say Narnia, they say it's Narnia. I don't know which one it is. But that scene when like all the bad guys are coming, there's a little girl and I can't remember her name and, and she's freaked out and then, and then the, the camera angle changes and you see this massive Aslan lion standing right next to her and when he roars, everybody gets flattened. Like I think of that picture and oftentimes, I know I'm, I'm this big burly dude with tattoos and everything, but I feel like that little girl. That's, that's, that's what I feel like. It's really afraid, right? Wondering if I'm, if I'm just gonna fail epically as a dad, as a pastor, as a husband, as a friend, whatever it may be. I feel like I walk around in fear quite a bit and then I'm reminded in a text like this, that like, hey, God lives inside of me and he lives inside of all of us collectively as a community. That, that's, a, that's a pretty powerful force. Is being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, which means to be set apart as God's special people. There's a lot more to it, but 
to be set apart as God's special people. To do what? To offer spiritual sacrifices, he says, as you live your lives as an act of worship. Like everything that we think, say, or do is an act of worship, either to our Father or to his enemy. And so the question often is, is, is this going to worship God as I, as I think, say, or do this thing? For it stands, he says, it stands, it says, it says in Scripture, behold, I, God, am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, Jesus, chosen, special, precious, mean priceless. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Why? Why would you not be put to shame if you have trusted in Jesus? Because shame and guilt were put to death at the cross in the empty tomb of Jesus, plain and simple. Our God left that tomb empty. There's nothing that he can't do. So the honor, what does that mean? The special seat of attention is for you who believe. At the end of the day, the church is a special home that's being built with human stones, right? Now, when I think about Peter, again, go back to Peter. He's laboring. He wrote these things, laboring over that letter like I would labor over a letter to my wife or to one of my kids. I notice different words that kind of pop out to me, words that are meant to speak life, that, that are meant to comfort people who feel like they aren't special at all. Maybe the people he's writing to, maybe they feel like they're not special because of some deep, dark sin they've committed. Is that you this morning? This last week, you gave back into that secret sin that you don't want anybody to know about, but you know about it, and you know that God knows about it. And you walked in this morning, and you're like, man, I wonder, I wonder if when I walk into this space, I wonder if God might speak to me. And I think Peter's trying to write this to people who struggle in sin. I think he wants to give comfort to people who feel like they're not special because of that. Or maybe, maybe it's when you walked in this morning, you're wrestling with some kind of a past traumatic experience, right? Something happened to you when you were younger. Something happened to you in your marriage. And it's been deep down in there for a long time. And truth be told, if anybody knew about it, you believe you would be on the outside looking in now that you would be an outsider then, right? I think that's what Peter's writing into. I think Peter wants to combat that voice and that kind of experience by saying, hey, if you have trusted in Jesus, if you are part of the body of Christ, then you are part of a home that's being built with human stones who have trusted in the shed blood and the broken body and the empty tomb and the promised return of Jesus. Peter's saying that those human stones, you and I, we've been created by God. We've been chosen by God. When you think about that, God walks into the adoption agency and he's like, hey, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and I walked out with you. And I'm never giving you back. Like that's, that's really powerful to me. <clears throat> when I think about the fact that, like, for me, my dad left when I was five, right? So for me, this is really powerful to think that a father figure would walk in and get dirty, sinful, broken old me, pull me out of that place, and then never send me back because I was too bad. I was chosen by him. And if I was chosen by him, I can't get unchosen by him. 
And the really great thing is the days where I choose not him but something else, he still chooses me. Like, that's grace, you know? He had no reason to come drag me out of the middle of the street that day. And you may not have the same story as I do, and you don't need to. God, I hope that you don't have the same story because that's full of a lot of pain and heartache that you don't need to experience. It doesn't matter where God found you, wherever he found you, when he chose you, if you belong to him, he ain't ever going to unchoose you because of what you did last week or what's happening in your mind right now. You know? That's grace. So the question is, have you been looking in the mirror lately and despising the reflection you see? Like how often do you look at yourself and think that you really are nothing special? You're right? like, man, I'm worthless. I really screwed that up this week. I don't fit in. I don't sense that if anybody really saw the real me deep down inside that they would actually love me or stick around much longer. If somebody saw that darkness inside of you, right? The thing is, is that God looks at you this morning and he says, hey, I love you through the cross of Christ. If you're here and you have never trusted in Jesus, I don't want this to like just like bounce over the head either. I want you to know like, like there's something that the Holy Spirit does in the midst of the preaching of God's word in people's hearts. So if that's you and you're like, I've never trusted in Jesus, never taken that step. I'm, I'm a little afraid to do that. I don't know about this whole Christianity thing. If that's you, I just, I, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would speak to you and, and call you out of darkness and call you to himself. And you'll, I think you'll sense if that's happening. You'll sense if you can see God in this and if you can see yourself in this as well. Think about the second thing. Think about how special our Savior is. Think about how special of a person he really is. He's special, right? I mean, I was asking one of my daughters the other day, I was like, uh, I was like hey, Charity, who, uh, who do you know that actually has real freedom? So we got kids that are graduating right now. And, you know, when you're getting ready to graduate, I know Pastor Paul has a daughter graduating today. But when, 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 when you're getting ready to graduate, you remember being that age or if you are that age in the room, there's a sense of freedom that's coming. Like, I'm going to be free from this. I might even be free from my mom and dad's house or whatever that sense might be. And so I was talking to our youngest daughter, trying to combat something early on in her life. I'm like, hey, do you know anybody that actually is truly free? And she's like, the only person I know that's truly free is Jesus. I'm like, great pastor's kid answer. (laughs) Stars on your chart in heaven, you know. (laughs) And we just had a great conversation about true freedom. When you think about Jesus, he really is special, not just for that reason, Right? He's special because of what he did at the cross for us, right? He, he left this perfect, comfy, cush place in heaven, came down to this sin-soaked, filthy place called earth, and walked this road for the joy that was set before him to the cross. And like the picture of joy that was set before him in terms of sacrifice, and I, I think of the American church today, and I'll, I'll get off it real fast, but man, we are a spoiled, rotten bunch of people, aren't we? You know what I mean? I, like, one of the things I love about church planning is we're set up in a gym that doesn't have the best sound, doesn't have the most comfortable seats, probably doesn't have any air conditioning. I'm assuming that's why the doors are open, right? Like, <laughs> 
Like, I love, that's something that I love. We used to meet, meet in YMCA, and it was humid, and it smelled like uh, bleach. Oh, gosh, it was horrid. <laughs> it was hot, okay? It was hot. And you just sweat like crazy. It's a, there's a picture in there of what Jesus did uh, for us. What makes him special? Um, Again, think about Peter, right? Laboring over this letter. As I envision Peter one more time, he's over that desk, he's writing away. I can see all the, the crumpled up kind of pieces of paper over uh, 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 in the corner, right? And what he's doing is he's trying to get all of his words just right, okay? His audience is never gonna know. That's the thing. His audience is never gonna know how many times he wrote this letter. Now we think about how God inspired the words of scripture, I just think that we have a tendency to think like, well, it was like a one and done. No, I don't think it was like that at all. I think there was some labor that went into this. His audience is never gonna see all that. You ever, you ever labored over a letter to a loved one? You know, I, handwritten letters are, are a thing almost of the past today, but labor over a long text message or a long email even. You're going to send to somebody that you love deeply. Maybe it's somebody that you're fearful for that's walking away um, or that's living their life on tilt. Or maybe it's a final letter to uh, a friend or someone who's about ready to pass away. You know? I think Peter, as, as he writes this, he knows how hard life is. Sometimes I think we kind of have a tendency to uh, almost deify the authors of Scripture, glorify them. I think Peter remembers when he sat next to that really warm little campfire on the night of Jesus' death, warming his hands from the cold night's air as, as his own heart grows colder and colder to, to the Savior who actually loved him enough to warn him of his impending sin. I mean, they had just sat down for dinner and Jesus had just warned Peter, hey, you better watch out. I can see Peter as, he's, as he writes these next words on this piece of paper. I can see him just weeping. That's the way I see him as he writes this with that memory in mind. Verses seven through eight. He says, hey, so the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. So he's talking about two different categories of people, those who believe and those who don't, right? The honor is for those of you who believe, but the, for those of you who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So here's the thing. What Peter's saying here simply is that Jesus is this special kind of a cornerstone that holds the, the home together, but then he also causes outsiders to stumble on the step. Now, what I don't think Peter wants is I don't think he wants anybody to stumble and fall away. And I certainly don't think Peter wants anybody to, experiencing, to experience the kind of stumbling and falling that he experienced on the night of his Savior's death. I think Peter remembers the warning that Jesus gave him. And I think Peter knows that warnings are meant to keep us walking straight without stumbling in the darkness and falling flat on our faces, right? That's what warnings are meant to do. 
I think that Peter remembers the pain and the agony that he experienced when he looked into the eyes of his friend and his savior who would give his life away in such a horrific way for him despite his own failures and rejection. Here's the reality. Because the irony of this text is this. Every one of us has been Peter. Every one of us has failed and rejected Jesus. Every one of us has warmed our hands by the fire as we said, I don't know him. Well, our hearts grew cold. And just because you and I said yes to Jesus 15 minutes ago or 15 years ago doesn't change that. There's, we're not going to arrive at perfection this side of heaven. We know that intrinsically, right? See, every time you and I sin, it's as though we are rejecting Jesus and then basically nailing him to the cross again, if you could. That's hypothetically speaking, probably very close to heresy because you can't do that, right? It just brings the horror of our sin home again. I mean, if you think about the real stumbling block here, you think about Jesus. I think Jesus, who was so joyful to go to the cross, I think he would willingly crawl right back up on that cross a million times over if that's what it took to get to you or I. The reality is it was finished there at the cross, so it doesn't need to happen again, but I just think he'd be more than willing to if that's what it took. The reality here is that Jesus is not just a stumbling block for us and we believe and disobey God. Jesus is also the chief cornerstone who holds everything together like superglue. See, the message of the person and the work of Jesus Christ is kind of the mortar between the blocks. You actually have block walls so you can look and you can see those lines. That's mortar that holds those bricks together. Jesus is that superglue. And when you and I look in the mirror in the morning, all we can see is someone who is unlovable, or someone who is unwanted, or someone who is worthless, who are we listening to? We're listening to the voices of Satan, sin, and death telling us that we're not special. But God, what I think God would do is he would shout at us, right? He would shout at us from the cross and the empty tomb, and he would say that you are special if you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior. Why? Because Jesus is a very special person who holds it all together. Think about this one last thing, because my time is up. I've never preached a message in 35 minutes, and I still haven't, I guess, so I'm sorry. <laughs> Third piece, you're being engraved with a, a special message. It's the last thing I saw in this text. When you, you think of a special message, and I, I, I kind of ask this question, have you ever written a letter, a special letter to someone? How about this? You ever been given a special message to give to someone else? Like someone forwards you an email, someone sends you a text message, you're, you're having a conversation with somebody and they're like, hey, you need to send this on to somebody else. Or, or maybe your spouse says, hey, make sure you tell the kids this and then you forget and face the consequences. You know? Or maybe you have a friend who comes to you and says, hey, this is really important. I don't want you to forget what I'm about to say to you. So how easy is it to forget the simple message that in Christ you are special, you are priceless, you are redeemed, you are ransomed, you're loved, you're eternally secure. And I can see Peter once again. I think he's lost in thought as he's over that table, as he's writing the final words of this text. He's asking the Holy Spirit to give him some words. They're gonna feed the sheep of the master shepherd, right? Like every disciple of Jesus 
Every one of us here that is trusted in, in, in Jesus, Peter has been given, and we have been given a commission to go and to share a message that has been engraved upon our lives. But at the same time as I think about Peter, I can see that he's got this other memory in his mind. It's one that you might be familiar with. It's probably in a picture on his wall to remind him daily. I think it's a picture of him and Jesus. They're taking a stroll alongside a lake. They're on this sandy beach. They're walking along right after the resurrection, taking this afternoon stroll together. I think it's hard for us to see Jesus as the one who likes to take strolls with us, right? He is. He's a good friend to sinners. I can see Peter's pen laying on the desk right on, on, on top of that, what I would call a tear-stained letter at this point. Um, he looks at that picture of him and Jesus taking that stroll on the lake, by the lake, and I think he remembers Jesus' words to him as Jesus basically restores him from his failure just a few nights ago, really when he betrayed him. I think he remembers the joy that began to replace the sorrow and the agony that he felt deep down inside of his heart as Jesus began to speak these words over his soul. Listen to, what, listen to my loose paraphrase of what Jesus says to Peter. He says, hey, Peter. Hey, Peter, I love you. I love you like a friend. Do you love me like a friend? And what's Peter's answer? Well, of course. You know I love you. Well, then... Love my sheep like a friend. Walk on a little bit further and, hey, Peter. Yes, Lord. <laughs> hey, Peter, I, I love you as a brother. Do you love me as a brother? I can see Peter's heart kind of shifting a little bit like, oh, no. He's getting at something. Love my sheep like a brother then, Peter. Last question, right? Um, walk on a little further. Hey, Peter. Peter, I love you unconditionally. Do you, do you love me unconditionally, Peter? Then love me unconditionally. I mean, at the end of the day, what he tells Peter is, feed my sheep like a friend, feed them like a brother, feed them like you love them unconditionally. And then he starts writing, I think, I think, with that thought in his mind, he starts writing. He says, hey, you, you are a chosen race. You're not outcasts. You are a people for God's own possession, okay? He, he, he owns you. You belong to him. You're not cheap imitations in the pawn shop window. You are an exact carbon copy of Jesus. You are meant to proclaim the excellencies of him. Who? God the Father, who called you out of the darkness of Satan's sin and death into Christ's marvelous light. Once, meaning at one point, you were not even a people, right? You were, you were nobodies, wandering around, stumbling in the dark, no one to call you special, headed towards destruction. That's where you were before starting to follow Jesus. That's where you are if you're not following Jesus now. And Peter says, but now, <clears throat> you are God's people. You're special because your heavenly Father says so. Won't you not receive mercy? It's an interesting phrase. You had, you had no way of getting out of the darkness that you've gotten yourself into. But now you have received mercy, meaning that God has redeemed you. He's given you what you do not deserve. He's withheld you what you really deserve. At the end of the day, if you trust in Jesus as your Savior, then you are part of God's family. 
And as a member of God's family, you've been called out of the darkness to proclaim the special message of the gospel. The reality is that God has been engraving the message of the gospel upon your very life. Think about it this way. Every hardship you face, every failure you walk through, every bit of suffering you've experienced, all those things are being used to engrave the message of the gospel on you in a unique way that is different than the way that he does me. But the message of the gospel never changes. He's doing that so that others might see and hear through your life and come and become part of the family. In conclusion, I have a special ring that I wear on my hand. The funny thing is I wear a lot of rings and all of them have meaning to them. But I wear this one here. It's on the finger next to my ring finger. So we don't do that wrong. It's this ring here. It was uh, given to me, very special to me. It's got a chain around the inside. Bikers like chains. Um, It was given to me by my my daughter, Harley, and and her husband, um, Jordan, shortly after they got married. And it's a special ring to me because of who gave it to me, right? It's a constant reminder to me of that day when they got married. Um, it's not only that, though. The, the ring itself uh, fits really well because it actually communicates a message. Uh, engraved on the ring says, put on the full armor of God. You may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. <clears throat> now, you think about it. This ring at one point, man, it was just a blob of steel. It was useless. Uh, it was without form. didn't matter to anybody. Um, some point, some ring maker, I guess, stopped, picked it up, this useless blob of steel shaped it into a special ring that it is today. And then for a certain amount of time, this ring sat in a storefront, just waiting for somebody to come buy it, call it their own, and show it off for the entire world to see. You and I are kind of like this ring. And the, my prayer is, is that God has come and found you, drawn you to himself, called you his own, and that you have trusted in him. And if that's you, if you've recognized your sin, just, just, like, just like mine, that our sin is what actually separates us from God, and that despite that sin of rejecting Jesus, just like Peter has done, um, Jesus still went to that cross on our behalf with a heart full of joy, your picture in his pocket, and your name on his lips. And if that's not you this morning, and if you're here and you've, you've never come to that place, I would love to invite you to come talk to one of the leaders here and myself afterwards. We'd love to see you find that place where you can say, you know what? Because of what God says about me, I am special. I'm a savior special. And there's a message that's being engraved upon me that I might proclaim into the darkness as well. Amen.